Hear our gospel reading from the gospel of Mark chapter 8. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be shamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels? And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Holy Father, we give you thanks for your word that does indeed bring life. We pray that you would use your word by the power of your spirit to breathe life into our souls. Encourage our hearts and exhort us on to the paths of righteousness for your namesake and for the sake of the witness of you and your kingdom, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you know, growing up, one of my uh, favorite science experiments that we no doubt will be doing in our school here this fall or at some fall is, you know, the, the experiment we do with caterpillars where you you order this little kit, you get the little box that's got its little plastic windows and you set a caterpillar in it and this caterpillar, they tell you, is supposed to turn into a, a butterfly. And so you feed the caterpillar, you watch over the caterpillar, until one day you come in and it's hanging upside down, and it's starting to build itself a little cocoon. And then after a while, you know, after the cocoon gets a little old, it starts to look like it's dead. If you didn't know it was a cocoon, you might think it was actually a dead leaf hanging on a branch. And then, you know, some morning, something magical begins to happen. Right, the cocoon begins to move. It, it has life and breaking out is something that looks very different than a caterpillar. It's a, it's a butterfly. Uh, there is, and what we learn is that there's actually no beautiful butterfly that flies around uh, without the cocoon. What looks like death to the caterpillar is actually the thing that makes it alive, that actually sets it free to be its true self. And uh, this thing that we find here in nature, the caterpillar, 
a cocoon, butterflies, uh, is an echo of deeper things, deeper truths that we actually see this morning. As Jesus asks the most profound question, first he says, right, who do others say that I am? And they respond, well, you know, uh, what are, I guess you're a prophet maybe, or people maybe think you're John the Baptist or, you know, reincarnated Elijah or something like this. But then Jesus, for the first time in the gospel, makes the question very personal. He turns to his disciples and says, but what about, what about you? Who, do you? who do you say that I am? And this question is actually the tipping point in the book of Mark. Everything that we've talked about has actually been moving us towards this particular moment. As Jesus has been showing himself, his power, his might, his miracles. And now they finally get it and they respond saying, you are the Christ. Uh, You know, growing up, I I used to think that Christ was the last name of Jesus. Um, Maybe I'm the only one that's willing to admit that, but I'm sure I'm not alone in this. But it's important to know it's not his last name. He doesn't come from the family of of Christ. It's, uh, It's a title for him. It's who he, who he is. It means anointed one. Which for the Jewish people, it means Messiah, the long way to Messiah, the one who would come and free the people, the one who would liberate them. And, and that man is here. It is Jesus. And he is like none other. They're saying, you are the Christ. You're not a re- reincarnated prophet of old. You're not John the Baptist. Jesus is something new, the long awaited Messiah. And as the disciples name Jesus as the Christ, right, the thing that they have in mind is the end of the story. They have the butterfly in mind. They don't yet understand where they are in the story. They don't know what it means either for Christ or for them. This is something we struggle with too when we follow Jesus. We forget where we are in the story. And the question that runs through this that comes to us is the question, who is Jesus? He is the Christ, but maybe not the Christ that we expect, or if we're honest, maybe he's not the Christ that we always want, but he's certainly the one that we need. And so we're going to look at these two things this, this morning as we consider Jesus as the Christ. We're going to consider the suffering Christ and the suffering disciples. But first, the suffering Christ. You know, right after the disciples correctly identified Jesus, he says, okay, uh, I'm going to tell you who this Christ is that you declare that I am. In verse 31, he says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and, and the scribes and be killed and three days rise again. Jesus is saying, I must suffer. I will die and I will rise again. And it says here, he says it plainly. He's, he's not speaking in parables, as he's been doing often. He's not speaking in riddles. He's not veiling this information. This is, this is plainly said. They know what he is saying. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Well, Jesus says it means that he will suffer. The disciples' jaws must have dropped when they heard this. Say what you... You're going to suffer and die? I don't think so, Jesus. This isn't what they had respected. You remember, they were thinking about the butterfly, not how the butterfly becomes a butterfly. 
Right? They expected the triumphant Jesus that's long foretold from Genesis 3 that he's going to crush the head of the serpent. They, they're thinking about Isaiah 9, that the government is going to be on his shoulders. Second Samuel, where the Christ who would come and sit on the throne of, of, of David in Jerusalem. Right? Even Jesus saying the Son of Man is an allusion to Daniel 7, which speaks of the Son of Man establishing his kingdom on earth, claiming his throne, establishing his rule. This is the Christ that they had expected him to come. And they assumed that Jesus identifying as the Christ meant that he would make all these things happen right now, like in an earthly governmental way. That when the Messiah would come, he would go and sit on the actual throne in Jerusalem, not thousands of years in the future when heaven and earth become one, but like in a month or so. Let's go do this now, they're thinking. And so with this background going in their minds, when they hear Jesus saying this, that he's going to suffer and die, it must sound blasphemous to them. The Christ doesn't come to die. The Christ comes to rule. The Christ doesn't suffer under the rules of the rulers of the day. He is the king. He makes others suffer under him. He is the ruler. And so the disciples heard what Jesus said, and they didn't like it very much. And Peter uh, says this in verse 32. And Peter took him, being Jesus, aside and began to rebuke him. Imagine being Peter in that moment. Jesus, let me tell you what you're supposed to do. Come here. I don't think you meant that. Don't, don't talk like that. And I don't know if you remember earlier, Mark, you know, Jesus calls himself the strong man. And he's saying, you see, Jesus, let me tell you what the Messiah is going to do. We're going to go take the throne. You're going to the, rid the land of the Romans, and we're going to sit beside you, hoping you rule. Stop talking like this. You know, Peter, one moment declaring the most amazing, important thing someone could declare, you are the Christ. And the next moment saying, I, I rebuke you. Which, you know, it's easy to make fun of Peter, but how often do, do we do this? We, we tell God how to behave. We tell God what he should do. We think we know better. And look what Jesus says in verse 33 in response. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. These are some of the most terrifying words that Jesus says in all the gospels. Get behind me, Satan. Listen, he's not saying this to a, a prostitute. He isn't saying this to the woman caught in adultery. He's not saying this to a thieving tax collector, not to the doubting disciples. He is saying this to a leader in his own company, one of the big three. Why does he say this to him? Because Peter is clinging so tightly to his own visions of greatness and power and control that he couldn't embrace the way of Christ. Peter's rebuke then isn't reasonable. It's actually satanic. It's the easy way. It's the way that avoids death. You know, it's, it's the way of self-interest. And when we walk in the way of self-interest, we actually abandon the way of God and the way of the cross. And so in this, we find Jesus coming to claim his throne, just not the way that the disciples thought he would. How does he claim it? Actually, through his death, through suffering. Jesus claims what is his through death, not in spite of it, but through it. And this doesn't make sense to us. How? Because his real enemy isn't Rome. It's Satan. 
And under Satan, Israel is more oppressed than they know. It isn't human rules, rulers that are their problem. It's the powers of darkness. And this is what Jesus has set his eyes to. Israel doesn't need a savior to fight a legion of Roman soldiers. She needs a, someone strong enough to cast a legion of demons into the sea. Like, like Pharaoh and his hosts, this is the exodus they need. It's the exodus that Jesus has come to lead. An exodus from the slavery of the prince of this world, bringing full redemption, destroying the powers of death. And the only way this upside-down plan makes sense is by setting our minds on the things above. All right, this is what he says. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. When we see only through the lens of this world, we aren't going to be able to see and comprehend the backwards ways of Christ. But he has come to make all things new, to reorient that which has been broken, to give us new vision. And in this, we realize our problem is way bigger than we could ever imagine. It isn't a, a bad job. It isn't an annoying neighbor. It's not our governmental rulers. And often our minds are actually set too low on the problem. And in this, we actually don't see what the true problem is. And so because of this, we come up with all sorts of solutions, but we're coming up with solutions to the wrong problem. Peter thought the problem was Rome, so Christ is going to come to deliver him from Rome. But that wasn't his problem. He couldn't see his true problem yet. He was worldly in his thinking. His solution was too small. But what we have to see is that Jesus' vision, vision is, is nothing short of cosmic redemption. And in order to claim, he has to come and suffer and die. But it doesn't end there. It says he's also going to rise again. Anyone can suffer and die. It is in his resurrection that we find new life. And this is what he is bringing so for us to say that you are the Christ, we aren't just proclaiming the triumphant Christ, we're also proclaiming his suffering. There's no resurrection without the crucifixion. And what we find is that this J-curve, this dying and rising with Christ, isn't just for Jesus, but it's actually for all those who follow him too. And this is where we find the, the suffering disciples. The second thing we see here is the suffering disciples. Pick it up at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. These are profound words, words that we probably all in this room heard before, words that are likely underlined in your Bible. But do we understand what we're underlining? Do we understand what we're saying when we say these things? If you proclaim me as Christ, he is saying, if you follow me, you're going to lose everything. It's not a great recruiting strategy, is it? Hey, come follow me. You're going to lose everything. You're going to be homeless, but it's all right. Just come and follow me. It's going to be okay. And again, he says this plainly for them. If you want to follow me, we aren't watching, marching on to Rome. We're actually going to lay our lives down. And the first stop of following Jesus we see here is deny yourself. I mean, could there be a more antithetical declaration to our world's motto than to, to, to deny yourself? The world says deny yourself nothing, right? Whatever you want, go get, no exceptions. Do not deny yourself. And Jesus says, no, you need to say no to yourself. Well, what does this even mean? 
You know, some people can take this to mean it means that you're worthless or they can take it in a self-deprecation kind of way, but that's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is an exchange of loyalties. It's a covenantal relational reality to say, to deny yourself says my primary loyalty isn't to my own desires, but to the desires of Christ. Jesus is my guide. He's the one I will trust, right? The world says to us about our desires that your desires are the truest thing about you. But Jesus says, actually, submitting your desires to me are the truest thing about you. That's the thing that defines you. You know, one just quick example of this that's really prominent right now in, the, in our world is same-sex attraction. You know, it's likely in the room, even like this size, that there's someone that struggles with that in this room. And the world will say to you that the best thing for you is to actually give in to your desires. They say if you deny yourself this desire, you will never be the true version of yourself. But to this, Jesus says actually the best thing for you is to die to those desires, to not give in to them. This is the thing that actually brings you life. This denial is actually the way to life. You see, we think denying ourselves is the death. But what we find is that real death is given in to our desires. Lasting death is given in to our desires. True life comes through dying to ourselves, which is exactly where Jesus actually leads us, telling us to take up our cross and follow him. Following Jesus means that you're going to have to take up your cross, which means that you're going to have to suffer. You too will bear a heavy load. You will have to deny yourself, and to deny yourself is to suffer. I mean, who wants to do this, though? We don't want to follow a Jesus that leads us to suffering. We want to follow a Jesus that leads us to, to wealth. So why should we follow Jesus into this suffering? Well, Jesus answered that question here for us in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So why do we follow Jesus into suffering? Because of life. Do you want life? Do you want to live? Then you must die. This is the way. And it's a paradox. Jesus often says things like this, though, doesn't he, right? The least will be the greatest. The small things become great things. Those who want to live must die. Right? The world that Jesus imagines, the world that Jesus lives in, the world that he comes from is backwards. It's the upside-down kingdom. And what Jesus is saying is that to follow me will look backwards in this world, so in order for this world that has been disoriented by the fall to be undone, in order for us to follow this unworldly Christ, we must actually be disoriented from the ways of the world, which means death. Metaphorically, it means he must kill us so that we might be born again. Right? To follow him is to be reoriented into this new world, from the world of man to the world of Christ. In order to learn how to do this, we must first die. It says, if you try to save your life as you know it, in the end, it will lead to a permanent death. But if you give that up and die now, you will discover true life in a new and better world. But I think in order for us to actually give in to this, to actually trust, we have to be convinced that the world that Jesus is speaking of is actually better than ours. I mean, many of us might be tempted to say, I don't know, I, I like my life right now. I don't want to give up anything. You might be scared to lay down your life. 
This is one of the reasons why Jesus, Jesus often actually says how hard it is for rich people to enter into heaven. And, and this is why in needy people have little to give up and much to gain. So that leap of faith is often easier. But for those who have much to give up, the prospects of losing all that you have is scary. If this is you, though, if you don't want Jesus stepping into your world and habits and finances and relationships and turning it all upside down, then Jesus has actually something to say to you. He makes a logical argument for you beginning here in verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Right? He's speaking of profits and losses. What is the bottom line? Is it really a gain if you gained all that there is? If you gain the entire world, is that really a gain? If in the end you lose your soul. He goes on here in verse 37. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Listen, you can gain all that there is to gain in this world. And in the end, it still isn't enough to buy back your soul. And in this last section, he's saying, if you don't want me now, I can't have you then. If you're ashamed of my cross now, you can't buy it back in the end. Jesus comes at a cost. It hurts to follow Jesus. We have to give up time, money, reputation, comfort, our wills, our, our loyalty, ourself. But the death is infinitely less than the death of those who reject the Son of Man. If you fail to die the death that Jesus is calling you to now, you will die it later. And so he's saying, choose your death. The death that Jesus invites you to die now that leads to life or the one that will come later and lead to true death. As C.S. Lewis says, die before you die. There is no chance after that. But this is a struggle for all of us, to learn how to carry our cross, to die to ourselves. Uh, it's hard to accept that following Jesus leads us to suffering. But in this lies this profound truth that although we suffer, following Christ doesn't end in death. It ends where he ends, which is life itself. And that's what beautiful here is that this, he doesn't have us follow him into a place that he hasn't already gone. And we see this actually in 9 verse 1. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus is telling them here at the end, bear the cross, but you don't bear it on your own. With, you bear it with Jesus. And he's saying, listen, I will actually prove this to you. I will prove to you that what I am saying is true and that it works. You won't taste death until you have seen. You will see it. You will witness me conquering death. You will witness life spring forth from the grave. Jesus' words are not empty promises for us. And where is this full power of the kingdom of God on display? What's well, on the cross? Right? Jesus has demonstrated the truth of his own claim as he takes up his own cross. But his cross is greater than you and I. He bears the greatest weight, the greatest death, as he bears the weight of the sin of the world on himself, of all the brokenness that's in the world. He takes it all into the grave. And from the ruins of the greatest death, what springs forth? Life, resurrection, splendor, glory. This is what comes from submitting to Christ. Life, our suffering is not our end. Our suffering, our bearing our cross is on to life. 
And so Jesus says, follow me. Follow my ways and you too will have this life. You will suffer. No one wants to be told that, but it's true. You will suffer in this life by following Jesus. But when you follow him, suffering is not your end. Life eternal will be. And we don't walk this path blindly, but with eyes fixed on the one who has gone before us, Christ himself. And I don't know what that cross is in front of you right now. Perhaps for you in this room, it's conversion. Maybe you're scared to death to give up all that you have to Christ because you're worried that it will be the death of you. I tell you, it will be the death of you, but it will, the old you will die, but the death will not be your end. Out of it will, will spring forth life. Come, follow Jesus. Perhaps the cross for others of you is a besetting sin, something that you're struggling with often, and you're scared to death to give up that sin because of the promise of life that your addictions give you. Give your sin to Jesus. He wants it. He wants it dead, and he wants you to mortify your sin But in this dying to your sin, you will actually find true life in Christ. Perhaps it's the cross of generosity. Maybe you've been greedy or you've hoarded resources. You fear giving up what you have because you think it's the thing that gives you life. But only Jesus can give you life. Trust in him. Follow him. Perhaps it's the cross of love. Maybe you need to forgive someone, but you can't. Maybe you think forgiving this person will kill you. You think forgiving that person will actually take your life. And Jesus says, yes, you can forgive them. Life is found in me. Jesus says, I died for my enemies. You can forgive yours. Follow me. And the promise for us is this, that whatever crosses we are asked to carry on this side of eternity will become resurrection in the end. Easter is on the other side. Jesus leads us to life. The way of the cross is the way of life. You know, the great German Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this beautiful book called The Cost of Discipleship. And eight years after he wrote this this book on the cost of following Jesus, he paid the ultimate price as he died in a concentration camp in Nazi Germany. Ironically, just a few days after he was killed, uh, Allied soldiers came and liberated his camp. But his last words that were recorded were this. Right before he was killed, he said, this is the end. He paused. He said, for me, the beginning of life. What a joy that in Christ, every cross ends in resurrection. May we be a people that bear our crosses well as we follow Christ wherever he leads us. And even in this room, we don't bear those crosses alone, but we bear it in community with one another, following Jesus on to life. May we have this great confidence of our resurrection future. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, I pray that you would be with us right now. That you would convict us of sin, that you would help us to walk the way of life, the way of mortifying our sin. But knowing that you are with us because you have gone before us, may we follow you well. And may we encourage those around us to join us as we follow you together. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.